Okay, people, welcome to another fast-paced edition of OK So, where 30 single people are looking for love. If you didn't get a rose, go ahead and say your goodbyes before leaving the mansion. In this episode, I virtually sat down with Jared Wilichinski, Senior Vice President of Global Video Monetization and Operations at CBS Interactive. Jared and I met back in 2010 when CBS Interactive and Turner Broadcasting announced a multi-platform joint venture to broadcast the NCAA's March Madness. We talk about family disputes, what it takes to support live events, and Jared pays a quick tribute to Chris Fix. As always, if you like what you hear, rate us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at Podcast OKSO. Okay, so everybody welcome. Thanks for coming back for episode seven. On the line with me, I've got Jared Wilichinski. Jared, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. All right. Now the lines are moving, so everything's, uh, everything's functioning the right way. How's, uh, how's life under quarantine going? Uh, it's fantastic. I love my new garage office. Uh, I have three kids under six at home, and schools are closed until May 1st, so good times. Oh, so everything, everything is going just right. Over oh, there. it's about as, as, as well as I could hope. <laughs> All right, man. So I think you know how this works. You've you've heard me kind of wander my way through conversations with six other people at this point. So let's start with where it all began. Talk a little bit about where you're from. Great. Uh, so born and raised in uh, Queens, so uh, New Yorker at heart. And then uh, I also split time uh, right around middle school, went down to South Florida and then I school down there, college down, and college. So. so what are your overarching memories of Queens? I don't know that I knew it um, before you just said that, that you grew up at least for some of your youth in Queens. Yeah, so I uh, uh, grew up in Regal Park. Um, grandparents lived in Bayside and Flushing. Um, so you know, I think one of the things I remember, you know, I was still young, though, uh, I remember learning how to ride a bike on 99th Street, it's where we live, and crashing <laughs> into every car on the street, um, which was great. And then um, we were uh, members of a pool club in Flushing. So every summer, every, almost every day, we'd be at the North Flushing Swim Club. I think that was it. Okay, so you just described the quintessential... Jewish Queens experience, like every single human being that's <laughs> Jewish and grew up in Queens had that exact same experience. So that's, that's rubber stamp it. So what caused the move down to Florida? What brought you down uh, there? Let's see. Uh, so there was uh, my dad and his brother, they were in business together. They had like an electronics store in the city and they ended up having a big falling out um, at work which then led to an insane personal family feud with them. So they were part owners. That was part owner or just worked at the store, you know, for full time. Ended up with a blow up. Uh, and then we packed up and moved to Florida pretty quickly uh, where he got a job for selling uh, like connect or uh, internet connection equipment switches and routers and all that kind of fun stuff. <laughs> whatever the internet equivalent was. Whatever that kind of stuff. Or whatever, yeah. <laughs> stream Super Bowls and March Madness. It's the thing that you plug in and you do this. And you do that. It's about as technical. Totally. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, so well, we 
So let me ask, is, is that resolved? Do your dad and brother yeah, talk to one another? Did is. they? Man, you talk about fucked up family stuff. Um, sorry, I, you know I curse too much sometimes. That's um, okay. There's no language requirements here. Oh, fantastic. Um, no, so our, uh, our kids, their, our, my bubby or, or their mom, you know, sick with cancer, you know, and um, my uncle wouldn't let my dad see her like towards the end. So it was, just, it was just a disaster. Like, and they Holy crap. never like didn't talk for like 15 something years. You know, it was just like disconnected nothing to do with nothing to do with them. But I think over the years before my dad passed, uh, they tried, he tried to reach out and be like, it's families, you know, it's always going to be there. It doesn't matter how much, wanted to change but i think things never worked out and then my uncle passed and then and then with uh no one really at his funeral my dad went and his sons and that was it because guy was an asshole um (laughs) (laughs) uh so yeah so never really resolved and that was uh unfortunately it um but that's how our life started in florida yeah yeah crazy Uh, well it it got you down to Florida, I guess, where you lived for, you know, 10 or something years following that. It's always fascinating to me, family, I think in general, everybody's got their own weird skeletons or bodies buried in the closet. And anytime I walk into a, a house where I see a family getting along really well, I'm like, I wonder what they actually think about each other or who's the ugly redheaded stepchild in this crew. There's always, always someone there. So there you is- got yourself down to Florida and you know you went to UF, so tell me a little bit about what you read to UF and what you did while you were there. Were you in a fraternity? Did you play any sports? Anything like that? Oh yeah. Um, so let's see. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of what doesn't incriminate me for later in, uh, <laughs> for for my presidential run. So I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Um, no, I think we have a president for life now. So yeah, I think uh, unfortunately, I think that's where it's going. Um, so yeah, so I was in a fraternity, you know, and it, and it manifested itself in that I lived in a non-air conditioned dorm in the middle of central Florida in the summer. Um, How is that even possible? It, it, it should be. It, it, it <laughs> so there are like two dorms on campus that were, you know, they were hundred plus years old that didn't have air conditioning. And it's like a hundred degrees, a thousand percent humidity. And it's August. Um, it should be a crime that they make students live in this stuff, but they did. And I happened to get lucky and get assigned to that dorm. Uh, but right across the street was a fraternity that I ended there up there and I ended up joining, was, you know, perfectly modern. So you're sweating your ass off. You look across the street and you say, I got to get into that house. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was, you know, I did that freshman year, you know, got it. You know, uh, um, and then from there, I was heavily involved. You know, I ran the kitchen at some point. I became treasurer and then eventually was president for a, a year or two. So um, I really leaned into that uh, aspect of my college life. Great. And so I guess it's, it's two, two, you fell in love with, it sounds like you fell in love with two things 
in college. One is college athletics. So obviously you're, I'm assuming a huge, not I'm assuming, I know very well about you that you're a huge Gators fan, but two, is this where your love of operations sort of sprouted running a kitchen and running a fraternity and figuring out how all the moving parts came together? Yeah. I I never even thought about it that way, but yeah, I think just getting stuff from point A to point B and just, you know, getting shit done, you know, it's always been, I think a mantra that my father instilled in me and just like, and that I think translated to that, which then clearly has translated to my professional career. So um, I would say that that definitely, I think was the start of, of it, but I've always enjoyed working. I think I've been working since I've been 15 or so. What were some of your childhood jobs? Uh, Let's see. Uh, I started off as a bus boy at a Jewish diner. Got fired from that one. Um, Wait, stop. Why'd you get fired? Uh, I called the owner an asshole because he was an asshole. (laughs) That's that tracks with what I know about you. Okay, so you got fired from the Jewish diner. uh, So so then I worked at McDonald's for like two years. I think almost two years. Um, you know, it was it was a job. You know, it was, it was fine. Um, at some point, I asked for a raise. This guy told me no, so I told him to go fuck himself. So then I started to <laughs> sensing a pattern. Okay, sensing a pattern. Yeah, it's uh, oh god. Right. Then I delivered sushi. Uh, that one did not end well either. Um. <laughs> So, that so a lot of a lot of food service industry experience leading up to the kitchen in college. Before before college, uh, in high school. So that one, I quit on the spot because the lady. It was uh, it was right before SATs, or it was, it was like I had like practice stuff I had to do, or I actually had the test. I forgot what it was. And she's like, she wouldn't let me leave early, so I, I quit on the spot and walked out. Um, <laughs> I'm like. Yeah, I'm sorry. This California roll is not nearly as important as what I, I need to focus on. <laughs> You're like, look, I gotta, I gotta get to college, lady. Uh, yeah. Here's your California roll. Go, go. I don't away. want to do this much longer. So, uh, so that, then I worked at Sports Authority for a while. So I did retail. Um, I was so it's, I, like, I like that job. It's interesting, and I will say this, and this is where we're gonna sort of segue into your how you got into ad operations. Um, but when I was when I was a Turner for all those years, and I was first starting up a team there, and I needed a bunch of client facing account management staff and stuff like that, I would always look for the kind of experience you just described on their resume. Did they work in food service? Did they work in retail? Because I knew that those were people that knew how to deal with customers coming to them when they were really pissed off and not scream at them. Um, like that was always like, that was the one thing you could always count on that somebody who'd worked in a steakhouse or behind the customer service desk at Macy's wouldn't have flip off a customer. If they were yelling at them, they could handle the request. They could lower the blood pressure and they can get out. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all that those are the types of, of jobs you had before you actually got into the, into the workforce. And then became the person that tells everyone to fuck off. Well, yeah, once then you, it's like a, think of it as like a valley, right? So you start and, and then you can, when you get far enough along, you can, you can then tell people to screw off. So you graduate Florida, you're looking for a job and based in Florida is Sportsline. Yeah. 
So this, so you know, I was cleaning carpets at the time. So, and sorry, I got to. So the best job I've ever had was in college, which we skipped over. Which oh, okay, um, go for so it. I worked at a place called Cluck You Chicken, which was directly next door to my fraternity house. So I'd hop a fence and I'd be at work. Um, <laughs> for three years of college, I worked there. In which case. Uh, this Cluck You Chicken was also a bar. And our special was for three hours on a plastic cup. We'd write down the time you came, or you, you came in at two o'clock, we'd write down like 5 p.m. For five bucks, you could drink as much Natty Light or Bud, Bud Light, Budweiser as you want. For five bucks. Well, it only cost the restaurant, what, like 35 cents? <laughs> no oh, yeah. matter how much you drank. Yeah. Exactly. It was, you know, keg was like 40 bucks at the time or something like that. And it's like, you know, you could pour how many cups in a keg. It was, uh, it worked out. So, needless to say, I never, I drank free in college. And they had a full bar too, which, you know, um, I wore a chicken suit a lot, um, voluntarily. <laughs> which, um, oh man, that was, it was, it, when the place was crazy packed, I'd be, I wouldn't even be working. I'd just get in the chicken suit because I was so drunk and I'd just have a good time. Um, because women always love a man in uniform. Yeah, that's exactly. That's I'm going to have that tattooed on my arm. <laughs> uh, so that's where I think a lot of my managerial and, and personal experience came from, from being a bartender at college or wearing a chicken suit and all that fun stuff. So, yeah, when you're a bartender, you definitely have to figure out how to multitask. That's for sure. Um, yeah, so then you so, shoot down to so you shoot home basically to South Florida, right? Yep. So I ended up moving back home, and a friend of our friend of the family worked at Sportsline, doing e-commerce or something like that, and got me an interview as entry level ad operations. Uh, and the, and the guy hiring was uh, Mr. Murnick. So there you go. I'm glad. <laughs> I think we we talked about this before. We we're going to make sure his name came up. So oh, he is. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to say this, you know, not just because it's true, but also because he's going to love that we say it, but he is a, he is a, a fabulously large personality, an incredibly nice guy, um, and truly one of the characters of the industry. So Dave Murnick is a, is a hell of a guy. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I still talk to him all the time. Um, and you know, and I, I owe him a debt of gratitude as much as you know, God knows he's going to eat it up as he hears this. Oh, totally. We'll talk smack about him a little later, but oh, for now, let's let him think um, he's okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, you know, I walk in and I'm like, what the fuck is a banner? I'm like, I don't, I don't like, look, I like sport, you know, it's sports and it's online, which, you know, I think in 2004 was, you know, it was like, we all started getting uh, ethernet and Napster and all that stuff. I'm like, all right, these two things go together. I love sports football and baseball and watching it and fantasy football and like okay great and here's a job out of school so he gave me a chance and so this was before the cbs acquisition correct this was yeah so it was, it was branded cbs sportsline so i think cbs was a like an ownership still had skin in the game but it was sportsline inc i was uh i actually got paid out with my uh, uh, stock options when, when, sorry, Viacom bought 
it because CVS that's right because it was the same company in 2004 that's right so, and so you got paid at, so you know I, I keep saying this but uh what's old is new again yeah um, so I call everything I do is project boomerang <laughs> so you got paid out your stock options, a few thousand bucks. You just burn that all at Cluck You or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> probably. I think it was only a couple hundred bucks. It was like whatever the hell. I think it was bought. It was like a dollar a share. It's almost close to what Viacom CBS is right now. Um, uh, <laughs> well, better than a kick in the head. That's what my grandma. Yeah, there you say. go. Um, so yeah, a couple hundred bucks or whatever the hell it was. But yeah, then I became a Viacom employee. Um, and you got hired to do ad operations. Is that where you did you start in ops? Yeah, yeah. I started junior campaign manager, something like that. And we were in Dart, good old network ninety three. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I was doing ad ops stuff. In which case, you know, ad ops back in those days, I mean, we all were jack of all trades. You had to know everything because they didn't have we didn't have specialized roles yet it was just like okay here's an ad server do everything that's right that's right it was enter it and traffic it and manage it and optimize it and report on it and shampoo and rinse and repeat yeah everything yeah soup to nuts yeah so and then so the viacom acquisition comes through then ultimately cbs and viacom split um and you get a call from the home office that's like, we're moving the whole shebang to San Francisco. So get on board or get off. I would, no, no, it was, it was more, I can't stand being in Florida anymore. I don't want to live in my parents' house and it's too fucking hot down here. Uh, I need to move to New York. I was supposed to go back to New York originally. Got it. Um, and then, Two, there's, you know, the way it used to be, there was a head of sales in New York, Ken Lagana, and then there was a head of sales on the West Coast, uh, Chris Fix. Um, and then I, I basically, like, I got convinced by Chris to come West instead of go back to New York. Um, you know, and I'm like, screw it. I got, I don't, I got nothing to lose. I know what New York is. I love it, but let's go see what the, what the, the West Coast install. So, uh, let's take a moment since you brought up his name to just talk to me a little bit about Chris Fix and the impact that he had on you during his uh, what I would call short life. Um, you know, I I intersected with him a bit when we put the JV together uh, yeah. with March Madness, um, but I didn't have anywhere near the exposure you did. So, talk a little bit about Chris. Oh man, that man! What a what a blessing he was. To, he was just the, the light of life for everyone. So he, I mean, if it wasn't for him, I, my my career and, and everything would have been so drastically different. He is the reason why I am still at CBS. Um, Cause he actually found out I was interviewing with Mernick at Time Inc. So I almost went to go work for Mernick again after he left, but I got caught by Chris um, and man, he fought like crazy and got everyone on board to make sure I was taken care of and happy. Um, God bless that man. 
Um, he was like the life of the party. He was the most generous human being. Like it was, it was, he always made sure everyone was happy. He was like the quintessential sales guy, but he was just, but he wasn't like a shady one. He was like one of the good ones that are hard to find. That just genuinely cared about everyone, made sure everyone was happy, you know, and just and just took care of took care of you. It didn't matter if you worked for him or not. Um, yeah, when he passed, that one that one really uh, was just a shock. It was it was um, it was just so sudden and crazy, and just feel feel for him, his wife, and his boys. Um, but, but he, I owe him every almost everything for my career. Yeah, he was a he was a great dude, and um, yeah, uh, and well, look, I the thing about him is that he's got probably a hundred people like you uh, that are carrying on everything you just said about him. Um, and the reason so many people stayed at CBS, particularly in that office for so long was him. And, you know, so good. Uh, that's a good memorial for him. I think thanks for, thanks for taking a moment to talk through that. So you hung on, you moved to San Francisco and you hung on in San Francisco and all of a sudden your industry exploded, right? The CBS took on this massive role. They had all of these sporting contracts in place with the leagues and you took on just a massive amount of overhead around live events. That's really where you kind of made your name. So talk a little bit about what it takes to support a live event and the kind of mindset you need in order to do it. Oh, wow. That's a great question. I'm, I'm glad it's coming from you of all people. Um, <laughs> well, I have a little experience there myself, but not, not yeah, as much. Okay, as we'll go into that one. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you know, it, came, it all started with Marnik saying, who wants to learn his video stuff? I rose, just raised my hand be like, I'll figure it out. Why not? Um, so, you know, our MMOD, because I'm going to refer to it to its proper name, Arch Madness on Demand, rolls around, and it's time to figure out how we really effectively run that digitally. Um, so, you know, having to learn how TV works, and then how do we translate that into a digital execution and how do we do it just did it from scratch i think that all started in 06 i think either 06 or 07 when we really that thing really started taking off and just understanding like the pressure of you're gonna make or break your career in like an hour and the gators won in one of those early years too didn't they so you got to experience that up close right Yes, that was, yeah, so 06 and 07, it was uh, back-to-back years for Florida. So it just made it that much more more sweet to be on the business end of it, but then also get the, the satisfaction of just being a fan and watching the Gators take it home twice. Um, I made those games a little bit more challenging to focus on for work because I <laughs> would scream and throw things and go crazy. Um, but it, it really was a, was a, was a whole package. It made it a great experience. Um, and specific to March Madness, um, there was so much pressure in that first weekend of games because there are so many games in that first weekend. You know, it's 16-16 and then 8-8, eight and eight, right? So 
that's 48 games in that first week of the 65 or 67 now, I guess, total. Um, and so I always tell this as a story too, that first year that we had the joint venture, which I think was 2011, I was at the MLBAM offices and it was like 11.57 and I, I stood up and I went over and I took the garbage can and I brought it and put it between my legs in front of my computer and someone asked me what I was doing and I said, this first commercial doesn't run, I'm going to go ahead and throw up in this bucket. I think I was with um, you on that one. I think yeah. We, we did the first one together in the in the conference room in Chelsea. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And it just, there's so much pressure there um, doing that event. And so, but it, for, for you, it's not limited or wasn't limited to just March Madness, right? Then it became the Masters and the Super Bowl and everything else. And so you have this kind of year round. So talk a little bit about the process you put in place to be able to support those things. Yeah, so those big tentpoles, you know, ex, you know, especially when you go straight from we went from MMOD into the Masters, it's just like there's just no sleep. It's just you know, and you got it's you know the master of splitting spinning plates. That's what we do, and it's you know, and especially we were such a small team, we still are. And it's like it's just. Keeping, even though they're, you know, it's basketball and golf, but, you know, everything we've ever designed or done between events, including the Super Bowl to some extent, it's the same back end. It's the same process to do it. So as we had a plug in from one event, go straight into another one and then, you know, start dealing with something else longer term view or long, that was longer out. We weren't reinventing the wheel every single time. Um, I think that was what really helped us manage it effectively, you know, event to event is that we knew what we were doing and we didn't make it up new every time. Do you have any horror story to tell about some event going sideways in the middle of the event and you either oh, yeah. recovering it or punting on it? Give me one of them. <laughs> so it was, uh, let's see, which Super Bowl was it? It wasn't, uh, was it 50? Super Bowl 47. I think it was 47. It was wherever the blackout was. Um, it was Niners, right. Niners and Falcons. Is that the blackout? Super that's, Bowl? Yeah, that's the one. It was 2013, I think. Yeah. God, this, is, this is going to be my fourth Super Bowl. So you want to talk about, like, I thought March Madness was tough. Super Bowl is, is even that much more gun trudging because you, you just have the game and that's it. Um, uh, so Super Bowl 47, I'm sitting at ML Bam because that's where we were kind of where, you know, they were streaming the game for us. They were the back end provider we worked with. So listening to truck, you know, the Q point council is open and we're running ads. Great. Lights go out. And then you hear just complete chaos in the truck. No one knows what's going on. Is it a terrorist attack? Like, no. And it's just like, all all about chaos uh and then um and i'm trying to call chris fix who's in the suite in the in the in the superdome i think it was in the superdome um trying to figure like what are we doing for ads because i have truck you can't understand what's going on so many people saying different things so many different conversations so i'm just trying to understand what's going on i can't hear him he's in a suite with God knows how many clients and other salespeople and it's super loud. So we're like 
just holding on for dear life. Like, what ads are we supposed to run? Because God forbid you run you run the wrong pod in the Super Bowl. Jeez, it's it's even it is going to get exponentially worse. It's almost worse than no ads. Yes, um, it, it actually is legally worse than no ads because if it was yeah. that pod that didn't air yet, you did it. It's like it was under embargo. Holy shit! Um, so, you know. Finally, things calmed down and people started communicating. I got in touch with him. And then it was, you know, they finally understood what was going to happen with the rest of the game. Amazing. Um, and so now, you know, you're taking all that experience in terms of what you did operationally and you pushed it into kind of a, a more of a ad product role that you do now. And all right, so here we are, right? It's it's 2020 already. We're all locked in our houses for the indefinite future. Um, but you guys still have stuff to do, right? There's an upfront coming and you're going to have to execute and Super Bowls still happen and CBS All Access still airs and brands and advertisers still need to, to do those things. What are you, what's in the future for you guys? Like, what are you looking forward to in the next couple of years in this industry to be able to help you execute on the things you need to execute? Like what's next for CBS, Viacom CBS? So, so I think, you know, from a digital standpoint, I, I feel like we're so far ahead of the game in terms of what our capabilities are, how we do live and VOD and we do distribution and we do set top box this, phone that, device this, you know, you know, and, and doing it in the sports news entertainment verticals. You know, what's next? I think, you know, really leaning into the broadcast side of the house and how we bring our digital DNA to what is legacy broadcasting. Um, and I think it's, it's amazing. It is, it's still, I'm still amazed as to you walk into the broadcast center on 57th and you see their setup and what they do and how something gets from a desk to satellites to, you know, all that kind of stuff blows my mind away versus I go to google.com slash DFP. No offense, Jeff. Um, None taken. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and it's like, and that's what we do to some, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but it's, you know, it's doing more and more in that world and how we get that digital, digitalized, you know, as more things move to IP um, and we start doing a lot more of the cool stuff on linear broadcast that isn't IP delivered, um, I think there's, just, there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of cool things that, that in the next couple of years, I think we're going to start making some real leaps and bounds. It's interesting. TV is a really interesting business. I've gotten up to speed on it. I mean, I know a tenth of probably what industry veterans know, but over the last few years, just trying to dig in and TV, like on its surface is very simple because the value prop is very simple. You know, most of the time, everybody's watching the same ad at the same time, but there's so much complexity that sits below that local versus national over the air versus cable and all of the affiliate arrangements that sit above behind and next to that. And the actual sales efforts that go into uh, having advertisers run in those, the affiliate model, everything. So TV is wildly complex in support of what really is a very, very simple value prop, which I think is what makes it so interesting as a medium, or at least behind the scenes, one of the things that makes it so interesting as a medium. Yeah. 
No, I, I agree. And I think the, you know, it's, it's amazing how much the business complexities make all of this stuff exponentially more difficult. Um, Cause on digital, they're not so much of a barrier, but on, on traditional broadcasts, you, you flap your wings in Africa, you get a hurricane in Florida. Um, you know, it's, it's really having to do 3d chess on some of these things. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting way to put it. So, while we're talking about TV, what's your poison? What do you watch on TV? So let's see. So I'm like unwinding for the day after being stuck in the house with three kids for 12, 14 hours. Uh, where what? See, what are we watching? So, been watching just watched the last season of Curb. Um, mm-hmm. God, God bless that man. Um, Let's see, uh, Picard finished that, uh, which that's a plot, not to do a self plug, but you know, as a next generation fan and growing up on that, uh, I loved every second of it. Um, and Schitt's Creek, my uh, my guilty pleasure that we just finished that up as well. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any real need to be guilty about Schitt's Creek. I, I think yeah. it's, uh, I mean, I uh, I'm still early on in the series. I, I watched for a guy who works and lives and breathes television, I watch very little of it. Um, but it's a pretty charming, pretty funny show, I think. Oh, it's hysterical. I love, I mean, what was the early movie? Like, uh, Best in Show and those other, and those those set of movies. It's so much more, so, so much like that. And I loved every single, all those, those that tribe of, uh, of comics. Um, it's, it's fantastic. All right, so we're about 35 minutes in here, so let's uh, let's start to wind this down. So I have one final question for you, which is um, you born and raised in New York, reared in South Florida, and you know now you're spending your adult life in San Francisco. Who you got? Like wh- if you had your choice between the three, uh, all things, all bets off. Where are you, where are you putting your money? New York, South Florida, or San Francisco? Definitely not South Florida. Sorry, mom. Um, you know, I, it's I'll go visit, and that's about the extent to it. I can't live in Florida again. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I think I'm gonna be West Coast for a bit longer though. I love New York. I love coming to New York. I thrive in the hustle and bustle and the, not the fuck you mentality, but you know, it's, it's what I was raised with. And I, I, I enjoy that. I, I enjoy that. Uh, my wife, not so much, even though she's a New Yorker too. Um, but she, she's a lot more calm than I am. She, she, uh, I hear kids screaming in the background. <laughs> Every other call, it's kids screaming. Uh, so I think, San Francisco for for a while, and um, hopefully I can keep it that way. All right, man. Listen, thanks so much for taking the time. This was phenomenal. Um, when uh, when all the quarantine stuff settles down and you manage to get yourself back to New York, uh, we'll have a steak and we'll uh, we'll catch up face to face. Absolutely, can't wait. That's our show for today. In honor of Jared's beloved University of Florida. Here's Gainesville-based band Sister Hazel performing their hit, All For You. See you next time.